Right, thank you guys so much for having me here. Um, we'll do this sort of uh, speech style. But if there's anybody who has anything to say, any rebuttals, any questions, anything, of course, you know, let's do it. Um, I'm drinking decaf, I think, but I don't usually drink coffee, so we'll be a little bit of a little bit yeah? Very good to see you. All right, so a few years ago, I, uh, I was living uh, my stressful life, and I had been dealing with, you know, a number of couples that were giving me a run for my money. A few cases where there was very heavy, um, very heavy things going on, you know, between the husband and the wife. Um, and they were, whatever, a few things that were going on, and I, I collapsed, mamish just from the pressure of dealing with these couples. One Friday night I went to shul, I was like a little wobbly, everything just seemed like a little hazy, and I got, there was a, I saw a guy there, and I said like, I said, can you just like look at me, like, how do I look? And he's like, you don't look good. <laughs> I was like, thank you, just be honest. He's like, no, you really look like you're going like really downhill. So he's like, I'm going to take you home. You shouldn't be in shul. So he drove me home. I walked in the door. And like, all of a sudden, I started feeling it from the bottom of my feet. Just like started just feeling like tingly, like all the way up to my fingers. And then just like everything just like stopped working. My whole body just like, just, just like stopped. I was like, I was like electrocuted. Like I just like went down. And as I was like going down, I was like telling my wife, I was like, call Hatsala. And I was like, but I lit candles already. I'm like, it's mutter. Like call, call Hatsala, like right now. And Hatzalah came, and they were nice. They stayed with me for like an hour. And they said, we don't know what it was. You didn't have like a heart attack or anything, but your, your whole system was just like totally like shocked. Like you overwhelmed your system. You need to have something in your life where you're able to just like get out and go into a zone and just not focus on the stresses of, you know, couples and people and business and, and all the things, you know, that I have going on. So... I decided that I needed a hobby, and I'm going to look around for something that will be able to like, get me into like, this nice zone. So what I discovered was photography, which is like a very nice way for me to like, sort of just get out there, stress-free, sort of zone in on like, a camera, a setting, a picture. And through that, I'm able to like, sort of like, get myself to a certain point where I feel like the tingles, like I know, like, okay, I'm running myself into the ground. I need to take a little bit of a break. I go out and do some photo shoots, and then I come back and I'm happy. And what I noticed over the years is that through sitting behind the lens of a camera, what's really going on essentially is that you're gaining a perspective of something. And a picture is just capturing a moment in time or a perspective of something. And sometimes, like, slight modifications within a picture gives you like a completely different perspective. And what dawned on me over the last few years as I was like sitting there behind the camera, I was like, you know, it's very interesting that so much of what goes into photography is actually like a metaphor for the idea of perspective and lens and seeing things like in its own way. So tonight I want to share with you four ideas as it pertains to photography. So for those of you who are into photography, we have like the whole Engel family here. So these guys are like world-renowned photographers. So if you're not if a photographer, it's fine, because everybody has a smartphone today, um, or a dumb phone, or a camera, or something. And if not, like maybe you've seen a picture somewhere, and you'll be able to like sort of, yeah, exactly, right? And you'll be able to um, maybe learn one or two things about photography, but maybe also perspective specifically as it pertains to 
your current relationships and hopefully future relationships. But in order to do this, I do have to tell you, I'm going to need a little bit of class participation. Okay, so like, remember when your Rebbe used to say that and you're like, no, I'm not doing it? I'm going to need it and I'm going to insist on it. We're not going to move on unless you indulge me, okay? So here we go. So the first idea when it comes to photography is the idea of framing. So the way that it works with framing, I'm going to make you do this, okay? Is that everybody has fingers? Baruch Hashem. So hold up your two fingers like, like an L, okay? As if like you're telling somebody like you're a double loser. There's always people who have a hard time with this. It's not hard, okay? It's not a W. It's like an L, okay? And now you're going to flip your left hand down and you're going to turn the whole thing sideways. Avi, come on. <laughs> Fine. Not that way. Like this, okay? Yeah, exactly. Just like this, okay? And the idea behind this is that when you're framing a picture, hold that pose for a second, what's in your frame is what you're going to capture, okay? If you cannot follow this step, <laughs> it's not hard, okay? You can even do this with your camera, okay? You, you take your camera and you, you just sort of like literally look around. Whatever is in my frame, this is what's being captured, right? If something is on the right of the frame, if I'm taking a picture and I see this, but I'm missing Rabbi Weinreb right here, I will not know that he was at this event. I won't know, okay? One of the great photographers today, his name is Peter McKinnon. He's like the fastest YouTuber to hit a million subscribers. You know, familiar with him? Amazing guy, right? B-roll, the guy's like a genius. One of his concepts, we're gonna talk about a couple of them, is the idea of framing. So he was giving a speech, and at the end of his speech, he had like 500 people who were attending the speech. And he was standing there, and he has like his, his tattoos down his arm. And he's holding his microphone, and everybody's taking pictures of him, you know, they're all excited, and they're all taking pictures of the guy who gave a speech. One of his friends ran behind him, and he took a picture of Peter McKinnon from the back with all of his distinct tattoos holding his microphone, and all these flashbulbs going off. And then he sent that picture to him in this massive, like aluminum, you know, like when you print picture, print, like those aluminum prints? And he sent it to him, and it was his perspective of the same exact event, but whereas everybody was looking at it from here, this guy was looking at it from here. And he was explaining the brilliance of perspective, that everybody just sees one person standing on a stage. That's not exciting, because you have no idea if the guy's talking to his two-year-old child, he's talking to 5,000 people. But this guy captured the moment in time that all the people gave him this standing ovation, they were so excited, they were clapping, the, you know, the light bulbs were going off. And he was like, that is the genius of perspective. Framing and reframing in the svarim is the idea of being down the kafschos, is the idea of seeing something from somebody else's angle. Framing is the idea of perspective, and perspective is the key when it comes to relationships. I was teaching a chassan many years ago. This guy was 19 years old. Got engaged to a girl from Muncie, and I, I see this is being recorded, so I'm going to be very careful with what I say, okay? But everything here will be accurate, okay? So this guy, he's 19 years old, he gets engaged to this girl, and he's living in Brooklyn, and he says to me, um, you know, I'm so excited, I'm engaged, blah, blah, blah. Great, we start classing classes. And then he's telling me about how he's having like these issues with his future father-in-law. Every time he sees his future father-in-law, his father-in-law turns to him and like gives him like this look, like 19-year-old kid, like a little schnook, you know, like you're getting married to my daughter. So 
he said, he's like, you know, this guy just rubs me the wrong way. Like, he really just, it's not good. It's not good. Anyways, he, he comes into the second chasen class. I have eight classes when I teach. So he, he comes into the second class, and he says, you know, I have to tell you, I don't think I'm engaged anymore. So what happened? So he says, we had, like, our first big, like, dinner. You know that dinner where, like, either your mother or your mother-in-law, like, that first time, like, after the person's engaged, they, like, they put out real china during the week. They put on, like, a table. You know what I'm talking about, right? They never do it. Like, usually, like, your mother comes home, she's like, here's supper, like, throws down, like, a bag. Right? Now here, it's like, she's cooking and she's making, like, mashed potatoes from real potatoes. Like, like she's, like, all into it. That was this supper. And he comes in, and his, his mom was, like, mixing potatoes. Like, she's all excited. And the kala's there. And the second he walks in the door, his future shver turns to him and goes, Oh, look who's here. The schnook is here. Hey, Rifki, the schnook is here. The schnook came here. This guy is t- taking our daughter. That schnook, he's here. So the guy's like, okay, like, we just got engaged. Could we, could we not do this? So his shver is like, all right, before we start eating, I want to talk, talk to you for a minute. So he's like, okay. So he sits down and he says, all right, listen up, schnook. So how much money do you make already that you're going to be able to take care of my daughter? Let's be realistic. 19-year-old guy, barely have a high school diploma. Like, what, what's the story here? You know what I'm saying? She's going to be, you're going to come, for, to come to us for money, right? You're not going to be able to support a family, right? So this hot-headed uh, fella, he's like, listen, I don't appreciate that you call me schnook. And, like, how much money I make is really none of your business. I'm not going to talk to you about this. So I would appreciate if you would change your tone and how you talk to me and the questions you ask me. So the guy's like, listen, schnook. You see this house? This is my house. And in my house, I make the rules. So I want to know from you, schnook, right now, how much money you make before we're going to eat, so that I can know how much money I'm in for with this, you know, little arrangement you have going on. So the guy's like, listen to me. If you ever call me a schnook, I'm going to lose my mind. And the things that are going to come out of my mouth, you're not going to understand. So the guy's like, listen, schnook. You try me, because this is my house. I'll say whatever I want to say in this house. The guy started cursing and screaming. The father-in-law threw him out so fast. They did not get to the food. He said, the thing that upset him the most, he's like, I was hungry. <laughs> he's like, I don't know, Munty. I don't know where I could go get food. I walk out of this house, like, just in a bad mood. <coughs> and he's like, I haven't spoken to anybody in the last 24 hours. I don't know if I'm engaged anymore. I literally was thrown out. That supper never happened. So we sat down for a long time. And I said, okay, tell me, tell me about your shver's perspective. Now, I have this rule that marriages don't speak English. I say this all the time. Marriages don't speak English. Your wife doesn't speak English. What she does is she communicates emotions in words. If you're single, it's a great time to start listening to this, okay? Because if you're married, it's already too late. You already missed the train on this like a million times. Women, when they ask you things in English, like when she says, where were you? She does not care where you were. She's giving you a statement. You were not here. Men are very literal. So we like hear a a question. We're like, that's a great question. Where was I? 
I was at work stuck with, like, she's like, dude, you lost me. You're not understanding me. Women's frustrations boil over when their husbands start to answer their questions. Where were you? I was waiting an hour. Well, actually, it's like, you lost it. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. You don't get me. You don't understand me. They package emotions in English, and they communicate those emotions over to us. And I explained this to this chassan, and I said, go into your future shver's perspective. He has a, a daughter who's getting engaged to a guy who doesn't have a high school diploma, who honestly has no money, right? Who, like, how are you going to take care of his daughter? What is he expressing to you? What emotion is he telling to you? I'm very insecure with you being in this family. I don't know that you're going to be able to provide for my daughter. Give me security as a father that I know that my daughter is going into a relationship that she's going to be happy with. So he said, but I don't want to tell him how much money I made. I said, you don't have to tell him how much money you need. You need to talk to him with that same emotion in English that you package and send it back to him. But he's a man, not a woman. So I said, this is what you're going to do. We do the same thing as men. Listen what he did. He walked into his father's house the next day. He brought him a bottle of something nice. I don't know, whatever, something that the guy would appreciate. And he comes in and he says, sits down with him. He says, listen, Shvar, you're the greatest guy in the world. You know, I apologize how I behaved yesterday. I was totally, totally out of line. You have a good question. How am I going to take care of your daughter? Now, I happen to be an accountant. So he says, I spoke to my accountant last night, okay? <laughs> and he told me, I do not have enough money to support a family. That is true. And you have a right to be concerned. But the job that I'm in, it has a lot of potential. I could really make a lot of money one day. And I'm going to be the greatest husband for your daughter. You're going to be so proud to have me in your family. I hope we could get over what happened. And let's move past this. And they gave each other a big hug. And they had their dinner. And he never told his father once how much money he made. What happened was, a little bit after the story, he got married to this girl. True story. And again, I can't get into too many details here on, 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 on camera. But um, let's just say his own family situation devolved in his own family. And he needed a place to like, figure out where he was going to move. And he ended up moving right next door to his father. Now it's about five years later, and him and his father are best buddies. They sit down, they drink all these whatever, whatever people drink, like, you know, beer and schnapps and Shabbos and Kiddush and go for walks and the chavrusas. They are the closest of the close because he just recognized one thing, that so long as I'm looking at it from my perspective, I'm not going to hear anything else. The minute I could step into somebody else's shoes and recognize that they don't speak English, but they're communicating an emotion, and I can recognize that emotion and I could talk back to them in that emotion, wow. It's like a total game changer. You're seeing things from a totally different angle. Rameer Khadash, during World War I, he was learning in Slabatka. I don't know how anybody drinks coffee every day. <laughs> it's, just, it's just disgusting. But I need something hot and there's no tea here. So, uh, <coughs> so we're rolling with it. All right, so, um, right, so Rameer Khadash. Rameer Khadash during World War I, he was learning in, in Slabatka. I believe he was 16 years old. And the altar used to send people out to learn in various cities um, around Slabatka to be like Machazak the Eilam. So he would come into base Medrash and he would sit down and he would learn with his Chavrusa and he would say, hey, do you want to learn and he would peer up with different Balabatim in order to like, you know, create like a Matzav in the Yeshiva. In, in, the, in the town. World War I broke out and in the middle of learning one day Somebody came running into the base medrash to tell them, like, you guys should know that 
we're about to get hit with like artilleries and the town is about to come under attack. And everybody in the town just picked themselves up, ran home, grabbed their worldly possessions, threw it onto a wagon and started bailing from the town. I believe they were all headed east to get away from the Germans. The story goes that Rameer Chadash, 16-year-old boy, he had his friend, his Chavrusa, the one who had come to the town from Slabatka with, and they were really close, really tight friends. And as soon as they heard this news, they had no family, they had no, no horse and buggy, they had no nothing. So they said, okay, let's get out of this town. So they pick up and they start just running like Meshagayim out of the town. And they can hear bombs starting to go off. They can hear on the other side of this town that there's fires being lit and they can see the smoke that's rising and they're running and running and running. And when they're about a mile and a half away from the town, or Mayor Chadish's Chavrusa turns to him and says, Ay, Mayor, I forgot my notebook back in the, in the shul. Do you mind waiting for me? I'll be right back. I just have to go back and get my notebook. <laughs> so Mayor Chadish says, your notebook, the town is under attack. You can't go back to the town to get your notebook. He says, no, no, my notebook is on my chadushim. I can't. I can't leave that behind. Please promise me you're not going to leave me here. So he says, okay, I promise you, but do me a favor. Run. Everybody's leaving. We have to get out of here. So Rameir Chadash's Chavrusa starts running back to the town. And Rameir Chadash sits on the side of the road. And as he's sitting on the side of the road, horse and buggy after horse and buggy start leaving the town. And as they leave the town, each horse and buggy sees this bacher sitting on the side of the road two miles outside the town. And they say, bacher, you're sitting here on the side of the road. Get in, we'll give you a ride. You gotta get out of here, you're gonna get killed. He says, I know, but I, I told my Chavrusa I'm gonna wait for him, it's okay, you could go, okay? So one horse and buggy after the next horse and buggy after the next horse and buggy, and Rameir Chadash is waiting, because his Chavrusa had to run back to the town. It's about a half hour walk, 25 minutes, 20 minutes if you're fast, and he's waiting, and one after the next, all the Balabatim, all the families of the town are streaming out. And he can see that the town is on fire, like literally looking back over the hill, and he just sees fire rising, he could hear bombs going off, and he's sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what if they caught my friend? What if they caught my Chavrusa? And Rameir Chadash is sitting there and turning down every single offer of people who pass by until that's it. They just stop coming. There's no more horses and buggies. And he says, okay, at least when my friend comes, we'll go running together. Finally, he sees this friend running out of the town, and he's holding his notebook, and he's like, Rameer, I got my notebook, you know, like 16-year-old Bacher, like, I got my notebook, like, not thinking about, you know, the risk that he's putting them in, and Rameer sees him running, like, he's like, okay, let's go, you know, you gotta get out of here, and as he gets closer to Rameer, he's like, maybe like 500 feet before him, the, Rameer looks behind him, and he sees that there's another horse and buggy that's leaving the town, like, one of the last schleppers is leaving the town, so he's like, okay, so like, this guy's gonna take us, right? Gavaldi. As the horse and buggy starts coming closer, he first stops by Rameir Chadash's friend. And he hears the guy scream out of the wagon, hey, Bachar, what are you doing here? You gotta get out of here, the town's on fire, there's nobody left, you gotta get into the wagon. So he hears his friend scream out, how many places do you have? So the guy says, I barely have one room for one. So he says, Gavaldi, I'll take it. And he sees his friend jump onto the wagon, and the wagon starts passing Rameir Chadash. And his friend leans off the wagon as they're passing. He's like, Mayor Hatzlach And he takes off on this wagon. Rameir Chadash is sitting there. He's like, what in the world just happened? What in the world just happened? So he says, okay, I'm not standing here anymore. He turns east and he starts walking east. 
And as he's walking, he obviously survived, but as he's walking, he starts talking to himself. Because the altar of Slobodka was very into Cheshben HaNefesh. When something happens to you, Cheshben HaNefesh. Stop for a minute and think. And every night the altar would say to his Talmidim, stop and make a Cheshben HaNefesh. And Romero thinks to himself, i really probably not going to make it out of this. Now would probably be a good time to make a Cheshben HaNefesh. And as he's walking down the road, he says, tell me about your day. Mayor, tell me about your day. And he says, well, today was a pretty good day. It started off. <laughs> it's nice weather. Clear skies. I got up and I davened. And went through my day. I learned Mesilas Yisharim with this guy. Learned with this guy. Learned with that guy. All right, and then how did the day go? And he says, and then the day went sideways a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, and he talks over his whole day with himself. And then he starts asking himself questions. And he says, and how were you today? Were you honest? Yeah, I was honest. I told my friend I was going to wait for him. And therefore, I was honest because I waited for him. And did you mess anybody over today? Like, did you stab anybody in the back? And he says, no, I didn't stab anybody in the back today. I was a good guy today. And he says, and, and did you like leave anybody stranded on the side of the road today? He says, nope, I didn't do that. I was a good guy today. I was really, really good. He says, all right, and how did it end? Well, it ended with a bullet to the back of the head. But, you know, everything's from the Ebishter, so that's, that's just how my day went. And then he thinks to himself, one second, my friend, he's also a Talmud of the Altar Sabaka. So that means that he's also going to make a Cheshman HaNefesh at the end of his day. See, he's going to come to a new town, and he's going to lay in bed, and he's going to be safe and sound, and then he's going to make a Cheshman HaNefesh. And he's going to say to himself, let's say Chaim, Chaim, how did your day go? My day started off very nice. I went to base Madrash, and I davened, and I learned, and then it went sideways. And then I forgot my notebook, and then I ran back, and then I got a hitch, and now I'm here, and I'm safe. Ah, were you, were you honest today? Honest? Ah, mostly, you know. Maybe uh, bended the truth a little bit. I told somebody to wait for me, and I didn't, you know, really live up to that. Did you mess anybody over today? Yeah, pretty, pretty badly. Yeah, you know, Michael Rusa. <laughs> he could have been saved, but unfortunately he's, uh, he's, he's not alive with us, you know, anymore. Um, uh-huh. And Rameer Chadish says over that as a 16-year-old Bachar, he started to cry because he started to feel the pain that his friend was going to go through laying in bed that night thinking of how he messed him up. He said, my own pain I did everything I needed to do. But what's going to be with his pain? Could you imagine how he's going to feel later on this evening laying in bed? And he cried. A few minutes later, the last Meshuggah from the town came flying out on a horse and buggy. And the guy goes, are you crazy standing here on the side of the road? Get into this. You're going to get killed. And Romer Chadash got a hitch. When Romer Chadash was in his 90s, there are pictures of him arm in arm with Chaim, his friend. They were best friends. When they reconvened and they met each other, he gave him the biggest hug. How are you doing? How's everything? I didn't see you in a while. Because he was able to see something from somebody else's perspective. I told you I'm an accountant. So there's this client, they're attorneys, and we do a lot of business with them. And we recently had like a whole engagement, something that they needed, that we represented them to the city. And this was like something that took 
I'd say probably around four years of us fighting New York City on their behalf. Finally, we had a whole conference, a whole conferee with the state of with the city of New York. They sent in their attorney. It was me against this attorney on Zoom, and then they had like this referee who like hears out both sides. There was about a half a million dollars at stake. I prepared this speech like the most impassionate speech I ever gave in my life. And I'm on Zoom and I'm like screaming into my computer like, you don't understand the taxpayer today, what he's going through. I gave like this whole speech and I'm citing laws and I'm like varfing every far I can. And finally the, the referee, the, it's like the judge, he turns to the, to, the, to the thing and says, you know what, I believe this guy and we are wiping about half a million dollars of money that my, tax, my client most likely should have paid. He wiped it, he wiped it free, okay, he wiped it all. And I finished this thing and I, clo I closed the Zoom meeting. I was like, whoa, like we got that. Up. I was so excited. It was such a great moment. And as we sent out a bill to this client, like $10,000 for like the work and time that went into this, we saved them a half a million dollars. And we really put in a, a significant amount of time. The client called us up about two weeks ago, all irate. What is this $10,000 bill? What is this? You're counting my money? My money you're counting? Very nice, you saved me a half a million dollars. So now I should pay you? That's how this works? I didn't know about this bill before. All of a sudden, you just spring this on me. And we were like, mom is like shocked. Like, what? Like, I don't drink booze. Like, I deserve a bottle of booze. Like, what is going on here? It doesn't make any sense in the world. And for the last two weeks, a client of 25 years, we were like going back and forth. Emails, calls, this, that. Fine. Today, my father had like a conference with them. And I was like, I was like, I, I'm so bothered by this because I put in so much time that I'm not even going to this, to this, to, you know, to this phone call. I, I didn't even want to be there. And by the way, it's a totally different schmooze. But when you don't even let somebody talk to you, like in the olden days, like when you would slam the phone down or like when you walk out of a room and you slam the door, that's like the ultimate, like, I can't even talk to you and you can't even talk to me. I was in that mood. I was like, I mamish can't even, what, I, I can't even hear you. Like, I don't want to hear your voice. We just worked for four years for you. And like, we build you 10% of what we should have built you. We just saved you half a million dollars. I could not wrap my head around this. And I hear my father in the other room and he's, he's not happy. And he's like, I don't understand. Where's your hakar? It's a type, like what we did for you. And he's like, Gadar. and they're screaming and he's screaming. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. So I walked into the room, they're like, where's Ruvain? So like, I walked in and I was like, okay. I said, guys, I'm here. And they said, yeah. I said, can I share with you my perspective? And they said, yeah. And I said, here's what I have to say. And I told them their perspective. I didn't tell them my perspective. I said, you guys must have been shocked when you saw this bill. $10,000, like nobody told you you're getting this bill. Very like shocking, like, whoa, what did you guys do for me? And I spent about five minutes, not longer, telling them about their perspective. I said, you guys must have been in shock. And throughout the years, we've always been there for you, and you've always been there for us. There were times we called you, and you never billed us when we needed, you know, advice from an attorney. You never started the clock on us. You guys were always there for us. You guys must have been shocked. How did we have the chutzpah to go ahead and send you a bill? Now let me tell you why we did that. The reason is, and I started talking to them. After maybe 30 seconds, he cuts me off. He goes, you know what? We, we have to send you guys money. Like, we have to send you guys, what are we sitting here arguing about? You guys did a great job. You guys got off our, you guys got off half a million dollars. You guys were amazing. I really appreciate it. And what could have been the end of a 25 year relationship, 
great. It's wonderful. Because we're able to see things from somebody else's perspective. Your wife, your friend, everybody you interact with, your clients, your business associates, they have their perspective. And when we live in our own world, it's not good to be in your own world. Because in your own world, the only thing you can see is this. When I see this, I don't see this. When I'm looking north, I can't see south. The way that you have a great relationship with somebody else is you put yourself into their shoes. Why is my wife so upset? Because something must be bothering her. What is she trying to communicate to me? Something. Let me step into her shoes for a minute. One of the greatest, greatest things you could do in any relationship is before you disagree with a person, always agree with them. Don't just agree with them. Say over their perspective what they're saying. Your wife says to you, I think we should get a, a green couch. Green, green is ugly. I don't want green. It's like puke. Who wants a green couch? Don't, the first thing you should say is a green couch. Wow, that sounds so interesting. Never thought about that. What a unique perspective. What's that going to look like in our house? The minute your spouse hears you say something, you hear what I'm saying? Now that we agree that a green couch would look nice, what if we turn that couch blue or mahogany? Oh, so now we can move our, we, we can move to the blue couch. We can move to a mahogany couch. The minute it's me versus you, you know, I, I answer so many people's questions. The first thing I ask myself, is this me versus you? Is it team husband versus team wife? Or is it us? We, we have a question. We have a question. It's like we are like swinging our arms, holding our hands, you know, hey, what's going on? We have a question. How should we deal with this? Versus, this Meshuggah here, you know, this crazy lunatic who I thought I loved, I thought I cared for, you know, totally lost her mind. I'm telling you, every single day, multiple times a day, I hear people give diagnoses like better than any psychiatrist. ADHD and, and uh, PT, what's, what's it called? Um, yeah, borderline personality. I mean, what, what did she tell you? <laughs> borderline personality disorder and multiple personality disorder. Every personality disorder. Like, I hear it every day. Yeah, and I even read a book on it once. Narcissistic. Mamish narcissistic. Like, so narcissistic. Like, you make time. I'm saying, like, you don't even understand. Like, I hear this every day from people. Like, their spouse, they have, like, shot stuff. Like, and then you turn to the spouse, tell me about your husband. Oh, this is Right? Like, because you can't hear that there's somebody else in the room who has a totally different perspective. And I can tell you that almost every single time, you know who's right, the husband or the wife? None of them. They're both wrong. They're just failing to see that there's somebody else in the picture who actually has a perspective that's a little bit different than them. That's the first idea of photography. Perspective. You ready? Can we do the next thing together? Okay. Number two, there's something called <coughs> exposure. The way it works with exposure, if you've seen a picture, has to have a good exposure. If it's too overblown, it's too white, or it's too underblown, and it's underexposed, then it's just totally black. Color, vibrancy, being able to like see everything in a clear light from beginning to end, your picture has to be properly exposed. And there's a lot that goes into exposure, and we're not going to get into it right now. But exposure, is essentially, is what makes a picture beautiful. Now, many years ago, I was learning by Rebusel Berkowitz, and there was this guy sitting there who every day would come in and he would go to the coffee room. Apparently, he likes this stuff. And he would come in every day and he would just drink coffee after coffee after coffee. I wasn't learning a blasted word. And one day, it was lunchtime, and he said to me, do you want to go out to eat? And right up the hill, there was this place, 
I don't know, whatever, one of these little schnitzy places that has, you know, whatever food. So he says, let's go out there. So we go out, and this is a guy who, come on, never saw the inside of the base medrash once since being in the cut for like three months. And he says to me, how are you enjoying the cut I was like, how am I enjoying the club? This is the greatest place in the world. I, this is Ghanaian. I love this place. I'm learning better than I ever learned. I'm going for smicha. This is like the greatest place. Like, this is Ghanaian to me. I said, how about you? He's like, me? I hate this place. I, I, I'm not connecting to the limud at all. Halacha is like totally not for me. I don't have what's going on. Like, it's like totally not working for me. He's like, you may notice that you never see me. I'm the guy in the coffee room. I'm not learning a word. I was like, yeah, I did notice that. But, um, you know. All right, so this guy was a very nice guy, and we got along, and he was there for one's month. That was it. End of his month, he tells me, you know, I'm going to the mirror, and in the mirror, I'm going to steig. I was like, you're going from our Berkowitz to the mirror. The mirror has 8,000 people. Our Berkowitz has 80 guys. It just didn't compute in my brain. Fine. Good to know you. L'chaim, l'shalom. That's it. A couple years ago, this guy called me up. I haven't seen him in, I don't know, probably 10 years. And he's like, hey, I'm going to be in America. Can I see you? I was like, America, meaning like you're still living in Eretz You know, like, uh, uh, can we say this? I'll say this. There's like some people who live like in Eretz almost like it's like burnt toast. Like they should have, they should have left the toaster oven like probably five or seven years. Like they're still walking in their Crocs to like Kylo, you know what I'm saying? Like on their toasters. I was like, this guy for sure is just like, he's probably just like burnt toast. Like he should have left like years ago. Like. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how long could you stay in Eretz Yisrael as a young married guy? Like, what's going on? So, fine, you want to get together? Sure, no problem, you know? And he just comes to my house and he sits down and he's like, put together, he's wearing a shirt, you know, whatever, fine. And he's like, how you doing? I was like, good, Baruch Hashem, what's, what's up with you? So he's like, yeah, very good. And we had like, probably like a 15 minute conversation. And it was interesting because he was sitting in my office and I had like all my farm. And as I was talking to him, I, like, I, I said, oh, you know, uh, I was just dealing with whatever. He's like, yeah, it's like the Gemara in, in, in Hulin. And he's like, look, you have a Gemara? And he like, pulls out a Gemara Hulin. He's like, he opens it up and he's like, yeah, on the bottom of you know, whatever. He's like, yeah, it's like this story over here. You know the Gemara in Hulin. I was like, Gemara Hulin. Guys, guy knows coffee like maybe better than anybody else. Guys doesn't know Gemara Hulin. You know, fine. So I'm like, okay, we continue talking. And, and he's like, yeah, it's like, it's like the story of like Avod Shmuel, you know, in the, in the back. Like, in the back of the rush, you know, like, in, in, in Menachas, like, he's talking about that story with Avod Shmuel. It's like that. I'm like, Avod Shmuel, what the heck is going on here? Like, I, like, this doesn't make any sense. He's like, no, you know the story, right? And he, like, pulls out, like, Menachas, he opens it up. He's like, look here in the back. You'll see. And he, we were schmoozing for 15 minutes. My entire table was filled up with Gemaras. And they were open to different, like, Marmachimas that, I, like, I needed to research once this guy, like, left, you know? <laughs> like, the whole table. So I said, like, I said, can I, can I ask you a funny question? I don't mean this like in a weird way, but like, you were the coffee room guy. Like, you did not know anything. Like, don't tell me Chulin Menachas. You didn't know anything when we went out to eat that one time. Now you're sitting here like barfing Gemaras, like as if it's like in your sleep. Like, whoa, what's going on? So he says, Yeah, I didn't tell you what happened to me. So, what happened? So he went to the mirror, and in Shamei Simcha, in the base medrash called Shamei Simcha. That's where Rav Glustein would sit and learn. Rav Glustein is one of, how do you categorize him? One of the Rashi Chabura, one of the, one of like the Ramim, the Mashkiach of Mir Yushalayim, okay? And Rav Glustein would sit with his Chavrusa and just sit and learn. And this guy sits down like, like this, like right next to Rav Glustein. Okay, so Rav Glustein's learning with his Chavrusa. And this guy sits down and he's like looking at Rav Glustein. 
So this is like nine o'clock in the morning, and Rav Glusin turns to him like, <laughs> like yeah, can, can, I, can I help you with something? He's like, no. He says, okay. So Rav Glusin's learning, and literally from nine to one o'clock, this guy just sat there like this, just like looking at Rav Glusin. Okay, Rav Glusin comes back a second later. This guy is sitting there, waiting for Rav Glusin, and he's just looking at him. Everyone's like. Do you need help? <laughs> can, I, can I answer a question for you? No. <clears throat> Just want to watch you. So, okay. So he sat there and that was it. The next day, Raglustin comes in, 9 o'clock. This guy's sitting there next to Raglustin. He just watches him. So th- when he came back for a second Seder, and this guy was still there, he's like, you know, if you ever want to talk about anything, <laughs> I'm available for you. You know, it's like probably sizing up like the mental, you know, um, you know, capacity of this individual. So, fine. He told me he sat there all day Monday, and all day Tuesday, and all day Wednesday, and all day Thursday. At the end of the day Thursday, if Glusin says to him, you know, Friday I give like a like a chabura or something. You're welcome to come join the chabura. <laughs> you know, if you're interested. Um, but. It seems like you're looking for something, and I don't think you found it yet. So maybe you want to talk about it, and maybe I could help you find it. So he says to Lucy, and he says, you know, I realized that I'm really not strong in learning. I realized that I'm a smart guy, but I'm not, I'm not into it. I don't see like the, the, the geschmack and the zest and all of that of learning. So I figured I'm going to come to the mirror. I'm going to find someone who is so like, excited, not just excited about learning, but he's doing it his whole life. It's like in his bones. And I'm just going to sit there and just be exposed to his, his simchas hatayra, his learning with his chavrusa, his masa matan, just like schmoozing through a taisvis. I just want to get that exposure. Once I have that exposure, maybe it'll rub off on me. So I'm going to sit here until I feel that it rubbed off on me. <laughs> so Blue says, it's going to be a long zman. <laughs> okay, it's a winter zman. You plan on sitting here every single day. You might as well open a gemara also and see if the gemara rubs off on you, you know, just like by exposure. So he says, okay, but I'm, I don't feel ready for that yet. You know, like it's a little premature. So Lucien says, listen, if you're willing, at the end of each day, I'll learn with you for like a half hour. And I go finish second like, Seder and then I'll sit down and I'll learn with you. So this way you'll get like exposure from me and from the Gemara. We'll start with that. And he said, fine, I'm asking. And they did this for a number of weeks. And then it became longer time and longer time and longer time until it fed off into this guy. And he was talking to me, he wasn't saying this from like a Gaiva perspective, he was just telling me, this guy is like learning, forget red lights, because he lives in there until he takes the bus. Like, he gets on the bus, he has like 12 sparum open. He's like, I, I, I fall asleep most nights at the dining room table. Like, I don't make it to the bed. Because with Glustein, that exposure that I had from him, it just, it just became like part of like my bones. When you're exposed to something, it affects you. A few years ago, I was on the way to Arizona with my family for Pesach, which I don't know what your perspective is on Pesach programs, but if you're ever invited to go for free, don't even ask questions, just say yes. Just say absolutely yes. Okay, your hashkafa will change if you're anti it, it will change on the spot, okay? I can promise you. Like, would you like to come for free? Yes. Are you gonna pay for my tickets? Yeah, of course. You'll pay me? No. Okay, fine. I'll come anyways. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's worth $25,000? Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. Okay, no problem. All right. I have to give three speeches. $25,000? You got it. So, um, so I was on the plane going to um, Arnava's Pesach program, and they separated, for some reason, they separated me from my family. So my family was like sitting up front, 
this is like every man's dream, by the way. <laughs> Whatever. Like, I'm sitting in the back of the plane like, by myself, you know what I'm saying. I'm sitting in the back of the plane by myself. My wife is up front with like, the kids, and we couldn't switch. It was, very, it was very important that we maintain our originally assigned seats. So I'm sitting in the back of the plane, <coughs> and I'm sitting next to this like, old, old couple. And the guy didn't look Jewish at all, but like after five seconds, he's like bageling me, like, oh, shalom, you know? Like, oh, shalom, what's going, to, what's going on? It's going to be a good five-hour bageling flight. So he's like, where are you going? I'm like, well, I'm going uh, for, uh, for Passover. I'm going to Arizona. So he's like, oh, that's so nice. I always go to Arizona for Passover. I'm like, oh, so you're Jewish. Oh, it's so interesting, because I didn't pick that up when you said shalom. Um, very nice. And we start like talking, and he's like, yeah, it's beautiful weather there. Um, it really is, you know. <laughs> um, you know, April's like pristine, gorgeous, wonderful. All right. So I said to the guy, uh, you know, how long have you been going here? He says, oh, I'm going since like the 60s. Like, 60s? That's like a long time to be going. He says, yeah, Passover by my family is like, you know, he didn't say like Yarg Valyavar, but he was like, you know, this is like our thing. So I said, oh, amazing. Where do you live? In the Westchester, whatever. And he's like, yeah, I'm the Gabai in my shul. Oh, it's so nice. Tell me about your shul. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a woman who's a rabbi, but it's very good because we need, we need a minion, so we count. He's like, we hold the halacha that we count women, so therefore it's, it's, very, it's very good. Like, like I, I pass and it's okay. So, so, like, we have men and women, we get 10 every day, um, even for our daily minion, and it's beautiful, and the women say Kaddish, and down for the Amr, it's, it's very nice, but at least, like, he, he made sure, like, you know, they have 10, and they have to be bas mitzvah. Like, he wrote the rules, you know, according to, to how he wanted it to be. Fine, it's very nice. So we were, like, schmoozing. I was like, wonderful, great. Um, um, yeah, great, you know, I have, like, a wonderful thing. So he says, you know, Passover was always so, so important to me. And he starts telling me about how he was in, this guy legitimate was like 100 years old. So I, I don't remember which war he said. He said, I was in a war. I don't know if it was like World War II, Vietnam, Korea. I don't know. It definitely was not like Iraq or Afghanistan. But it was like, it was like back like in the 60s or 70s. And he says to me like, yeah, back then, he says, we were on a boat going to Japan. And I realized that it was, it was Pesach. So he turned to like the commanding officer of the boat. And he said, um, you realize that tonight is Passover. The Jews on the boat need to have a Seder. That's like our thing. So the guy said, you're on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. There's no Seder in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So he says, no, it's Passover. Passover means a Seder. We need to have a Seder. So the guy said, what does a Seder mean? He says, well, we, we recline because we're free. And we lay, you know, like we lay on the side and we, we tell Passover stories. And we talk about you know, the Jews leaving Egypt, blah, blah, blah. And we eat crackers. And the guy's like, all right, we got some crackers. Um, but like, I don't have a place for you to like, recline. That's like, not happening. And they've gotten into this whole argument. And he said to the guy, like, listen, we're American citizens, and I'm going to have you court-martialed, and you took away my religious freedoms, and this is what we're fighting for anyways. And he put up this whole stink. And then finally the guy said, you know what? Um, we, we have, like, an officer's lounge, and that lounge, if you want to use that for, like, your Seder, you could do it. So he gets on the PA system, all Jewish people, please report to the officer's lounge. We're having a Passover Seder, we're eating crackers, and we're going to tell stories about, you know, the Jews leaving Egypt. So that was what they did. So they go, they go and they have their Seder. So after schmoozing with this guy for like a number of hours, I said to him, I don't understand something. <laughs> like, you're not obviously that religious, right? But Pesach, since the 50s or 60s, you, you have your Pesach. Your whole family, children, grandchildren, everybody goes to Arizona. On the boat, Pesach. Like, it seems like Pesach for you is like a really big thing. Can you tell me like, what, like what, what's, that, what's that about? So he told me, he said, my mother died when I was four years old. And he says, the, the, the memory that I have of my mother 
is her cleaning for Pesach. He says, and I knew growing up that most of my friends hated when, when it was time to clean for Pesach. Because the mothers would start screaming, it's time for Pesach! You're like, relax, it's Shvat. Like, calm down. I could bring Hamas upstairs, nothing's going to happen. But my mother, she used to, he, he tells me, she, she would dance around the house in her broom, in her, in her broom, with her broom, okay, with her broom. And there was a certain, there was a certain simcha, there was a certain menucha, and he says, it just put us into a certain mood going into Pesach that I will never forget. When I think back of my mother, all I think of is cleaning for Pesach in a positive way. I was like, you know, it's really amazing. Because if you ask the average person, like when your children's marriages start, when does your children's marriages start? When they walk down the chuppah, they get engaged, when they start dating, who they're looking for. It's not true. Your children's marriages start with you. Your children's marriages start between a husband and wife talking to each other, interacting with each other. It's simple things like when your wife is talking, just literally just looking at her, acknowledging, smiling, being nice, cordial. I cannot tell you how many times I've had couples sitting in my house. And people think, oh, you deal with Sean Bice, you probably deal with people who are like 21 to 23 years old. They're not even suffering yet. <laughs> the ones that are suffering are people... 8 to 13 years, that's when it's like, bam, life hits you in the face like a ton of bricks. That's where you're like, oh my gosh, a mortgage and five kids and uh, this crazy lady, like, what? Like, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't hit you in the beginning. The beginning is where you're like, yeah, okay, you let the toilet seat up. Who cares? Nobody's fighting about that. That's where you just like realize, okay, this is what I have to live with for the rest of my life. Real struggles, real struggles come in that like decade long, you know, time frame. I can't tell you how many couples I've sat with in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s and 70s. And they're sitting there in my house screaming and yelling at each other. I had once, it was the week that I turned 30, and I had a couple who was sitting, sitting by me, and they walk into the door, Chasidah couple, and they walk in, and the guy like sticks out his hand, and he's like, is your father home? I'm like, you're not here for my father. <laughs> he's like, oh. He's like, you look so young. So I was clean shaven then. So I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm doing this since I'm in my 20s. He's like, oh, shoot, you look so young. I was like, yeah, let's sit down and talk. <laughs> so we sit down, and they're screaming and yelling at each other. And I'm thinking, like, wow, this guy's old enough to be my father. He's sitting here screaming at his wife. And at one point, I just stopped the conversation. And I said, I have a question for you. If you would see your daughter sitting here talking to her husband the way that you're talking to each other, what would you think? So the husband who was screaming for like a half hour, he says, I would run into this room and I would shake this girl and say to her, who raised you? <laughs> and I said, bingo. You know who raised her? You raised her. And not by the things that you said, just simply by the way that you talk and you interact with each other. Exposure is exposure is exposure is exposure. We have time for one more, one more thing? Yeah, you guys are okay with one more, one more concept, one more idea? Okay. Last idea that I'll share with you here is a concept called bokeh. So when it comes to photography, okay, you're with me with the thing. Some of us need some work. We won't get into who. I'm not saying you. I'm saying some other people. Okay, so this one hopefully will be a little easier, okay? Give, give yourself a thumbs up like this, okay? And, and focus. Close one eye. And focus on, the, on your nail. Your nail is like really, really like fo it's in focus, okay? Now notice that there's something beyond your nail. It's beyond it, right? But it's blurred out, right? Because you're looking at your nail. Everybody see that? Yeah? That idea is called bokeh. You able to figure that out? You got it? Okay? Bokeh is 
that there's a picture, there's a scene, and I'm focused on this, but everything else is blurry. And by the way, our eyes are programmed to do that, and so are our ears. Within like so much noise, you hear one sound. It's like filtering everything, and it's focusing on this. When you see something, I see you, everybody else is like, then I see you, then everything else is blurry. That idea is called bokeh. Photography, great pictures have a ton of bokeh. It's like the, the subject is like popping out, and everything else is like blurred out. You could sort of see where it is, like maybe they're by the kaisel or whatever, but it's the idea like this is the person and everything else is blurred out. That idea is called bokeh, and it's an incredible, incredible lens through which to see the world. The Kavagyasha says that most things in our lives happen because the Abishter is in frame. We, f- we remember, right? Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. Maishi is a big tzaddik. We're dancing around and we're so excited. And we have in our frame a lot of things. But our bokeh, our focus, it's off-center. It's not right, strong, in focus. That's what the Kavayosha says. When it comes to relationships, <coughs> when it comes to relationships, focusing on what the core issue of what your spouse is really saying is the key to success. My son came home a few years ago. He walks in the door. He throws his knapsack down, takes off his coat, throws it against the wall. He walks upstairs to his room. He slams his door. I'm like, who does this kid think he is? Walk into the house like this. Like, what is going on? So I walked upstairs, and I'm like, he locks his door. So I'm like, what's going on in here? Like, you just walk into the house and just throw your stuff. Go downstairs and pick it up. We don't just throw our stuff on the floor. So my son's like, get away from here. I'm like, no, open the door. and We got to talk about this. No. The whole day, he was really bad mood. Okay. I'm turning, I'm like saying to my wife, I'm like, something's off here. All right. Next day, kid walks in the door, takes off his knapsack, throws it against the wall, takes off his coat. Rose it, goes up to his room, slams his door. I'm not doing homework and I hate everybody. Fine. And I'm like, hello, come down here. He's like, I hate everybody, you're the worst. I'm screaming. I'm like, okay. Finally, like the third day, he comes in the door. I see him, he like takes off his knapsack. I was like, ready for it. Like, I run over to him. I'm like, something's bothering you. What's, what's going on? He's like, Somebody's bullying me on the bus. This kid beats me up every day. Burst out crying. I was like, oh my gosh. Here I am as a father. Like, your kid comes home. And it's like, chutzpah. Right? Like, what goes in there? Chutzpah. Like, Seder. You don't just walk in the house and just throw things on the floor. I have to teach this kid how to, like, you know, this is a house. You have respect for your stuff. Your coat. I bought you that coat. You don't just throw it on the floor. Where's your respect for your mother? Like, you don't just throw things down, you hang it in the closet like a mensch, right? All the things are going through my mind for the first two days. The last thing on my mind was, wow, that's strange. I wonder if something's bothering my son. It was like on the third day that he walked in there, I'm like, something is going on over here. And then we dealt with this bully on the bus. The kid still walks with a limp. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we, dealt, <laughs> right? we, we dealt with this, with this, you know, with this situation, let's call it. Everything cleared up. So many people, especially men, we get married, and then our spouses walk in the door, and they are saying things we do not want to hear. And when they start talking, as men, we feel like failures. We do. We feel like, I, I, 
I, I, I'm like at a loss for words because I thought I was a great guy because I have two thumbs and this guy's awesome because I put a roof on your head and it's easy to convince myself that I'm just doing an amazing job. And then you start telling me stuff like I can't compute in my brain, like how I don't spend enough time with you and yada, yada, you're asking me questions. You don't like the way I answer the question, get into a whole like rabbit hole of quiet, quiet. Like, I don't even know what's going on. The average guy who comes to my office is sitting there like he thinks he's there to like give me like his perspective on the taste of my office decor. Like he doesn't copy there because his wife like is like, no, we, we have the problem. Like you are the problem. Like it, it's like hard for us to compute that. Like I'm the problem. We feel attacked. And the minute a man feels attacked, oh baby, we become crazy. We're like... Don't you, don't, what's, chutzpah, how you, that's how you talk to a husband? Gemaras that we never heard are like flying through our minds, like flashing through, like a woman's mechayev to be chavit her husband more than herself, more than Moshe Rabbeinu, more than God himself, right? We like, our brains just start with like, like these arguments, like, yeah, no, I figured this out. We like lose so much focus that your wife is calling out for help. And she's saying to you like, I had a bad day, I had a hard day, something's bothering me, I feel a little bit neglected, you're partially to blame, mostly not, but partially, I need a little bit more time, I had a hard, hard day, kids were really difficult, I was up half the night, it's all the things that she doesn't tell us, all those things she doesn't tell us, you know why she doesn't tell us, because she's so smart. I share with you the insight of women? I don't want to go any longer, but I just want to share with you. If you know this, if you know this, you crack the female code, okay? Women will never tell you what they want. Never. Because then it's so cheap. It's so cheap. The minute she says to you, I need this, and you do it, she's like, I don't want it. I told you, and you're doing it because I told you? I don't want that. I want you to figure out what I need because that's love. So they drop hints and they say the nastiest stuff to us. And we're like, what is going on here? Why are you saying this to me? I'm a nice guy. I, 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 didn't, I didn't say these things to you. And they're like, yeah. Because maybe you'll have how hard my night was. Maybe you'll have that when you tell me you'll be home at 7, it's not 8.30. Maybe you'll have that you don't just run out when it's bedtime or nap time. You don't just walk in the door, half drunk from a kiddish, fall asleep on the couch. <laughs> like, maybe you have. And if you have, and you change, and you admit, and you understand, ah, oh, you love me. Because you took the time to get to understand me. Wow, that's bokeh, that's focus. But if I had to tell you, that's nothing. That is the insight to marriage, which is like, the quintessential nakuda of women. Men were like straight up. I don't like you. You're not good to me. <laughs> You're terrible. That's men. Women are not like that. They will say everything but the thing. And they do that because they're trying to communicate an emotion. Not in English, but they use English words. So I hope you learned something. Marriage is like photography. And when you're really stressed out, pick up a camera. It's not forever. <laughs> Yes, this is terrible. <laughs> Thank you so much.